Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Well, good morning. I don't know about you when you came in. There was snow falling when I came in this morning. Oh, it was glorious. My Minnesota wife was so happy dancing around like it does snow here. So uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. And can I just take a moment and just echo what Sean says? Just a thank you to all of you who helped support and make the, uh, the Christmas show uh, such a success this year. And I'm so grateful for the amount of volunteers, our life groups that made meals for the crew all week long. Thank you for doing that. Parents who let your young kids come, I know we kept them up late, night after night, and I know they're cranky. Half of them are still home in bed sleeping today, so thank you for that sacrifice. But what a great, just a joy to be able to give that gift to our community, and so many folks outside of our church came, and so thanks for letting us be a part of doing that every year, and uh, we're grateful for what it has. You know, this Christmas season, especially as working through the book of Isaiah, my mind's been wandering different questions, like the the why, uh, the when, the how, why did God plan things this way? And why was the timing? And why was Jesus born as a baby? Why didn't he just come to earth in fully human man form and just start his ministry from day one? We're in the book of Isaiah. Why didn't the Messiah, why wasn't he born during the Assyrian times or the Babylonian? Why did we wait all the way for the Roman Empire before this baby was born? And I want to remind you today again as we look through uh, the book of Isaiah I'm reminded of this, how God's sovereign hand is seen all through the Christmas story. That there is a divine timing and a divine purpose for things that on an earthly level seem to make no sense, but God is ultimately in control. And I hope that will encourage you today as we see that a little bit over, that God is weaved miraculously all throughout human history. But he works in really unexpected ways, in really unexpected times. And I think about the timing of why the birth of Jesus came at the time of the Roman Empire. Why not 700 years earlier when Isaiah was giving the prophecy? Well, let me remind you how the Christmas story starts, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus, right? We're in the midst, if you know your history during the Roman Empire, this is during what history is known as the Pax Romana, right? The, it's the Latin word for Roman peace. 200 years, really the first time in human history, anything of this significance, for 200 years we're experiencing peace on the earth like never before. And Rome occupied so many of these provinces, and here's basically the way it worked. They would tax these provinces, but would allow each province, as long as they paid their taxes, to administer their own laws and have some degree of independence. And in order to expand this amazing empire called the Roman Empire, something had to happen during these 200 years of peace. An infrastructure began to create, like the first time ever in human history, and one of the greatest, I think, um, benefits throughout human history that the Roman Empire brought to us was this really the inclusion of this massive road system that was created during these 200 years. Here's a map that just shows the road systems and some of the trading routes. During this time of Pax Romana, Rome built over 50,000 miles of roads and paved roads for the first time in human history throughout their entire empire. In fact, even today, let me show you another picture, in northern Africa, in Libya, this road exists even here today. And so what I want to remind you is just what an incredible thing was happening during these 200 years of peace. Now, one of the unintended benefits that happened during this time in history, Rome thought, hey, 
We're going to build these roads so our army can support the northern part of our empire and we can quickly move them to the southern part. It was really a military motivation that did this. But there was something that had happened that was unexpected. See, the Bible we have today, it's all in this nice little cover, right? But this didn't all get put together. This took probably about 400 years after the ministry of Jesus. Before then, these really are just a, a accumulation of letters. Book of First and Second Corinthians. So it's a letter to the church in Corinth. So here are all these letters. Now here's the question. How do you think these letters got spread from church to church, from gathering from gathering? Through these roads that were there. And because these roads for the first time in human history are paved, here's what's amazing. Not only did it create easy access of sharing this information back and forth, but because they were paved in the Roman Empire before this moment in rainy season, these roads became impassable and nothing really happened. Supplies didn't move. These things didn't move during this. But because of what happened during the reign of Caesar... Uh, these times that now information passed freely year-round. Here's what's amazing things. As these letters got passed from one gathering of believers to another gathering of believers, and in the reading of God's word, people got saved and the gospel begins to spread in in an amazing way. The Apostle Paul, think about his missionary journeys. How did he travel? He traveled through 50,000 paved roads that had never been existing before through trade routes that had never existed. And so here's what I remind you, that the Roman roads were essential to the widespread advancement of the gospel in an unintended way. It's kind of like I'm reminded of the story of, of an old Pentecostal preacher who shared the story of a widow. And towards the end of the month, she was struggling to put food on the table for her and her children. And so each morning, she would head out to the window in a very animated way. She would begin to pray out to God that God would meet her needs, that God would provide food for her family for the last part of this month. And she would do this day after day. And on one day, as she's praying loudly out in front of the windows, she notices on the porch there's these bags, and they look like grocery bags. So she quickly heads out there and looks, and sure enough, on her porch... It was grocery bags full of all the groceries that she had been praying specifically for. And so she runs out on the lawn and begins to praise God and sing, God did it. God did it. And in the moment of that, her neighbor, who was a well-known uh, atheist, jumps out of the bush and says, Aha, God didn't do it. I did it. I bought all those groceries, and I'm the one that put it on your porch. Now what do you have to say for yourself? She thinks for a moment. She starts singing it. God did it. God did it. And he, no, no, no. He says, stop, 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 stop. What are you not understanding? I went to the grocery store. And I bought all those groceries with my money. And I put all those groceries in my car. And I drove them all the way to your house. And I put them on your porch. Now what do you have to say for yourself? She sings once again. God did it. God did it. And he used the devil to pay for it. You know. <laughs> That's what's really happening in the context of this, right? It's what's happening with the Roman Empire. A pagan evil empire is paying for the paving of the roads that spread the gospel in a remarkable way. And in the irony, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, what does he call the gospel presentation that we say today? It's the Romans road, right? God did it, and he used the devil to pay for it. It was certainly unexpected, but it was not, not preordained on what God had in the timing. We should know that. Proverbs 21, verse 1 simply says this. 
The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That in the will of God, he moves the hearts of kings and does amazing and unplanned things. So today, we want to continue with that theme that we see in Isaiah chapter 9 of the unexpected. Week 1 and week 2, we talked about the, the unexpected place and an unexpected people. Today, we want to talk about an unexpected plan and an unexpected person. And we're going to culminate our series on our Christmas Eve service, which will be our weekend service for that weekend. And we're going to talk about the unexpected response that Isaiah has for us. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would, go to Isaiah chapter 9. If you've got your phones, you can go to LexCity.info. If you're visiting this morning, LexCity.info has got all the information on things that are happening in our church, a lot of different schedules that are happening around the holiday weekend. So again, LexCity.info will give you all the service times for there. Chapter 9, verse 3, we pick up. This is what Isaiah says to the nation. 700 years before the birth of Christ, he says this is going to be the impact of this Messiah that you're waiting for. He says, you have multiplied the nations, and you have increased its joy. The Messiah will do this. He's going to multiply Israel. He's going to increase their joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling of warrior in battle... And the tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, he will overcome. Here's this unexpected plan that Isaiah says. And verse 3 tells us, right, two things that are going to happen. When the Messiah comes, Israel, you're going to multiply. And I know you don't feel that right now. Right now you're oppressed. You're about to be sent into exile, ran out of your country. But you at one point will multiply and your joy will increase. But God's going to do it in an unexpected way. He says, I got a plan, and this plan will not fit into human logic. This is not how you would sit and lie and lay out how you're going to change the world, but I'm going to do it in such an unexpected way that when you see it, there's only one person who possibly could get the glory for it. It'll be God. It just makes no sense on human nature. And Isaiah says, I'm going to do this, what's the key, in the, like the days of Midian, which is an interesting reference. So here's the question. What does that mean? What happened in the day of Midian? The day of Midian, it's, it's a reference back to the book of Judges, back in the time of Gideon. And the Midianites were an oppressive army, just like we're experiencing now, who are oppressing the nation of Israel. And God says to Gideon, I need you to, I'm going to make you my deliverer. I want you to rise up and I want you to free my people. So Gideon gathers his army, 32,000 men strong, ready to head into battle. That sounds impressive until you realize that the Midianites had 100,000 soldiers. Gideon quick does the math. That's about a one to three racial. We got this. My men are strong. They're well-trained. I'm a good leader. One to three. Let's do this thing. I'm ready for it. But as he gets ready to this, uh, God says, no, no. I've got another plan in mind. Uh, You've got 32,000. I I want you to send 22,000 of your men home, leaving you with 10,000 men. That's That's about a one to 10 racial. I don't know. Lord, can we do this? And Gideon begins to think, I've seen the Avengers, one to 10. That's possible. We can pull this off, right? So let's, let's, we got God on our side. Let's do this, right? And God says, no, no, you're missing the point. See, if you do this with a one to 10 ratio, then you're going to go down to the glory of this great leader and your men will be remembered as the men who overcame. This is not about your glory. This is about mine. I need you to send the 10,000 home. Just leave 300 men. And with 300 men, I want you to go against 100,000 men. Because when you experience the victory, 
Nobody will say it was because of great warriors and a great leader. They'll only say it was because of the glory of God, and this is my on-plan way to bring me glory. So Gideon heads off with his 300 men to go against the 100,000 men, and you know how it ended? You can read this for yourself. Judges chapter 7 this week, I won't tell you, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, Check it out this week. But God gets the glory for what happens as he does. (laughs) It's an unexpected plan, which shouldn't surprise us all throughout God's working with us as people. Everything seems to be unexpected in different ways. Think about our plan of salvation. How God says, I want to save you. I'm going to send a baby who's going to be born in a manger. He's going to die and be crucified on a cross. And then three days later, he's going to raise again from the dead. This is my plan for the redemption of man. And as you think about it, that's pretty unexpected. So how would we do it? I was thinking about it this week. Like if we were God, right? How would you create a plan for the redemption of man as we go? Let me give you, I got a couple of them for you this morning. Let me give you a, a, a spectrum and uh, think about where, if you were God, that you would find yourself in the spectrum. So if you were trying to determine how you, people would be saved, let me give you, one side we have everything from determinism, the other part we have universal reconciliation. Let me kind of walk you through this. So way over on this side, this would be, if I'm going to save people, I'm just, I'm going to determine it. It's determinism, right? The idea that God would determine everything, that he would create us as creatures who have no free will. All right? We would automatically choose to follow God. We would automatically choose to follow his commands. I mean, that would really create a race of people. I mean, it really would be heaven here on earth, right? No conflict, no sin, no choice. It would be the easiest way it would all be determined. That's one side of the spectrum. Let's move a little farther along. It could be a one-time choice. This is like how the angels were created, right? With a one-time choice. If you remember the moment when Satan revolts against God, God says in this moment, you have a one-time choice, and that choice will seal your eternity. You'll either choose to follow Satan, or you'll choose to be faithful and, and follow me. And from that moment of time and decision, your eternity is sealed, right? If you are a fallen angel or a demon, you never can be saved. If you are a heavenly angel, you never can fall. One-time choice that you have there. Or we can move a little farther. A combination of decide, what I just call decide and seal, right? That we decide to follow Jesus, and he seals us through the Holy Spirit. That our role in this redemptive process is to decide and believe, and the Holy Spirit convicts, and he leads and he indwells. It's this decide and seal, this combination. Or we can move a little farther down that spectrum. A, a shared salvation. We play a role in not only receiving our salvation, but then we would play a role in maintaining our salvation. If we do this, right, then God would do that. But if we fail to do our part, then God would remove his blessing in himself from our lives, Right? So in other words, in this idea of shared, that we've got to maintain a certain level of godliness to experience the blessing of God. Or all the way down on the full end of the spectrum, it could be, and this one's probably, if I think about it, this is emotionally, this one feels the best, right? This is the idea of universal reconciliation. The view that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God. So matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you choose or how you live, In the end, God is a loving God, and in his great love, he will look the other way towards your sin, and everybody at the end will be saved, right? So that's the spectrum. So if you were God, how would you choose to save mankind? Determinism 
all works out at the end, where in the middle? I was thinking about this. As, as a pastor, um, now this is certainly only for self-serving purposes. Uh, the one I thought would be great would be, I'd like shared salvation. Uh, this idea that Christians have to perform at a certain level in order to experience the blessings of God. Man, nobody would ever miss church if you had to perform, right? This would be great. Everybody would volunteer. We, the nursery would be full because we got to do our part to, to, to make God love us, right? We'd never have to worry about tithing or giving. We'd have all the resources that we need. That one would be great. The, the problem is that's works-based salvation, right? This is the idea I have to earn and work and do good enough that God would love me. It does a wonderful thing for changing behavior, but it doesn't do anything with changing the heart. And God says, no, I've got something better than that. It's not behavior-based. God has an unexpected plan. He says, I want to remind you that, that mankind, it's not like angels, right? We've got a lifetime to choose. Between now and when you take your breath, you have the opportunity to choose to place your faith in Christ. We're not pre-programmed robots, we're not unaccountable delinquents that can just do whatever we want with no consequences. We have a choice, and we're accountable for that choice, and that's an unexpected plan. God said, this is how I want it to be. I want you to respond and believe and trust, but I'm going to come alongside you and through the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life, walk with you and help you grow and, and indwell in these things. So it's this wonderful relationship. That's a pretty unexpected plan. I would have thought there were a lot of other ones. God said, no, this is how I went. It's complicated, but it's great. But this unexpected plan didn't just end there. It comes to an unexpected person. So let's think about that. So you have a plan to save mankind. Now the question is, how would you or who would you choose to deliver this message? Right? You've got a choice. You're God, so you can do anything you want. And any way that you share this message is going to be a good thing. So let me give you another spectrum. Uh, I, I titled this one, it could start with the idea of being fully God or it could end all the way on the other spectrum of deism. So let me give you fully God. The choice is, this is how I'm going to share the message. I'm going to appear to mankind in all of my glory. Really what we see at the return of Christ in the book of Revelations, right? I'm going to appear in the sky on my great throne, angels around. I'm going to speak in my loud voice. Lightning and thunder will come, and I'll yell, repent or face judgment, right? I could do that in all God's splendor. He could have done that in all of his glory, Probably would have a pretty good ratio of people responding. Still amazing people still wouldn't. But it could be that. The idea is fully God. Move a little farther on the spectrum. We call it the incarnation. All right? This word simply means the act of being made flesh. Right? For all the theologians who want, this is the hypostolic union that we're talking about. The idea that God would come to earth and be fully man and yet still remaining fully God. All right? This is what the Bible teaches. We speak about this a lot at the Christmas time. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That second idea is the idea that God would, would personally interact with his creation in such a way. Be fully God, and yet he would come to this earth and fully man. Why? So he could understand, so he could fill the requirements of the law, that he could give his life as payment for sins. Very personal and very interactive. There's other ways that God could have presented the message that are far less personal, but he could have stayed in heaven and not have to come down here to earth, which has some upside, right? He could have just used angels. Third one there 
We see that all throughout the Old Testament, right? Even the, the Christmas story appears that Joseph and Mary in dream or through, Moses, or through angels saying, listen, this is the great news I want to share with you. And so God could have just used angels to proclaim the gospel message. And they could have did miracles and flapped around in their wings. And people say, oh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that would have been a great way to share the message. Farther in the spectrum, right? He could have done, used preachers and prophets. The message simply would be spread by the reading of his word, proclamation by a few to, to the masses. Be a great way to share it. Or let's go all the way to the end. He, he could have just what we'd call deism. This is just the idea that a divine creator, right, created the universe but does not intervene with it in any way possible, right? It's the ultimate hands-off. So a divine creator created the universe, takes his hands off and says, you all figure it out, and we'll wait to see what happens. I mean, there's the spectrum of where they could be. I don't know about you, but thankfully, I'm so glad that God chose to interact and be very personal with his creation. This idea of the incarnation is such a powerful thing that God was involved in our whole salvation process, that he chose to be born as a child, to walk in our shoes. He chose not to be more than just simply an earthly king, but a heavenly king. And Isaiah is going to say in chapter 9, listen, I want to tell you a little bit more about this king who came to interact with his creation. He came to be more than an earthly king. I want to tell you about how he's going to be your heavenly king. And so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, let me tell you some more about this. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, he says four things, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the names that Isaiah gives for the Messiah, can I encourage you, they're, they're not just names that describe just his character. They're going to be names that describe this is how he's going to reign here on earth and this is how he's going to reign in heaven. They're extremely descriptive. They're not just names that sound great on Christmas songs, which we sing about them all the time. They're more than that. So as we look at those today, I want to remind you again, Isaiah chapter 9 was written not just to give us logistics. Like this is where... Messiah will be born. This is who he's going to be born. It was written to give you a heart into an understanding of who the heart of God is. So I want to tell you more about your heavenly father. I'm going to tell you four names that are going to define even closer who he really is. So let's start with those. Uh, first one, wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. That word wonderful is not a name. It's really a modifier of the word counselor. So it's going to give us some description of that. The Hebrew word for wonderful implies this idea of beyond understanding. I'm going to tell you about a counselor who's beyond understanding. Now, contrast that to human counselors or human judges. Uh, we tend to judge in very empirically, empirically with one another, right? We judge by what we can see, what we can hear, what we evaluate. And then on all those things, we make decisions. Sometimes those decisions are right, and sometimes those are wrong by what we can just see and touch and feel and understand. But he's going to say this Messiah, he's wonderful, his... His understanding is beyond understanding that we can do that. He's going to say this, this Jesus is going to have an amazing thing. He's going to say that the omniscient spirit of God, the all-knowing spirit of God will be upon this Jesus. And so he will intuitively know what is right and he'll intuitively know what is wrong. He'll not judge simply by what he sees and by what he hears. And because of that, he's uniquely a wonderful counselor. Isaiah goes on a little bit more in two chapters later to say, let me tell you a little bit more about this wonderful counselor who is our judge. This should encourage you. Isaiah chapter 11 says this, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, 
the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. For his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he, his ears hear. For with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loans. This wonderful counselor, he says, he's going to judge in an intuitive way, not just by what he sees and hears. He'll think of the poor. He'll care for these. He'll judge those that are wicked. And the beauty of this wonderful counselor is that his judgment will not simply be here on earth. This will be also his heavenly ministry. That God is a righteous judge who will deal, he says, really with his entire kingdom fairly. It's one word. Then he goes on to say he's the mighty God. And this idea of mighty God, it speaks of the authority of, of God and who he is. He's not just a wise and he's not just a righteous king, but he's a mighty king. In the Old Testament, we have this idea, we have these theocracies, right, where God places his authority on a single person, which we would have known as a king. So the challenge with that setup is simply this, is that they don't possess absolute authority. They ascend to the throne with right intentions, but here's what we know about, right? Absolute authority corrupts absolutely. So they have these great intentions of what they're going to accomplish and what they're going to do in their time, but power corrupts. And even if power doesn't corrupt, if they remain true to what they feel to do as kings, they still don't possess significant enough power to bring their plans into flourishing, right? They have these good intentions, but there's rebellion from within, there's oppression from without, and they seldom accomplish what they moved into their kingship to do because why they don't have the power to control all things. Their power is limited by themselves and it's limited by other people and it's limited by circumstances. So Isaiah says, let me tell you about this Messiah. Man, he is a mighty God. He alone possesses absolute authority. There is no one within and there is no one without who has authority over him in power. And so in the Jewish world, they have this wonderful name for God. It's called El Gabor, which is a Jewish name for the mighty God. He says, that's what your Messiah is going to be. And he says he's going to be an everlasting father. And this is such a, uh, such a beautiful name because it reminds us, amidst all of this power and wisdom, <laughs> you have a father's heart. This is what keeps it all together. You have this father's heart who cares for you. Uh, you might take that same phrase, we'd say it today, the one who is eternally a father. It's eternally a father. See, Israel had had good father figures. David in, in seasons of his ministry, in his kingdom. Solomon in seasons of this. The challenge is, is that they are earthly men, and so eventually they die, and their influence goes away. Isaiah say, here's the difference from the Messiah. There's going to be a continuity of his perfect rule. He will live forever, and so because he will live forever and is an everlasting father, this is the great part, he will forever guard his people and supply their needs because he is everlasting. So much different than earthly kings. Then he closes off with the prince of peace. And this is the name and the understanding of God that's created, I think, misunderstandings and at sometimes the tension with the Jewish people, right? When they think about the idea of the Messiah, they want a prince or a king who is going to overthrow, right, the oppressive kingdom through power and might and establish his own kingdom and sit on the throne. This was their impression of what the Messiah would be. And so when Isaiah says he's going to be a prince of peace, 
it creates a little bit of a tension, a tension between them. Because really what the Jewish people were wanting, right? They were wanting their version of Pax Romana, uh, world peace, established through a king who has power and authority and keeps all things down. That was their impression and visualization of what this Messiah would do. And Jesus says, listen, I'm coming in an unfamiliar way. Jesus says, peace is going to come not through just conquering earthly kingdoms, but peace is going to come by conquering the greatest enemy of all, the enemy that is from within, the enemy that controls us in such a way, and that enemy is sin. He says, this is where peace comes. Because think about it. Sin is what steals our peace. Sin is what destroys our families. Sin is what takes our children away. Sin is what brings heartache and lack of peace Sin is what ultimately makes us a slave. And Isaiah says this Messiah is going to come. He's going to conquer the thing that really is the thing that fights against your heart and your soul. It's not an outside army of oppression. It's sin within your heart. And nothing has changed. What makes this not always the most wonderful time of the year is sin, right? Sin has brought disease. Sin has brought division. Sin has brought hurt and brokenness and anxiety into our world. And Isaiah says the Messiah is going to come to conquer the greatest oppressor of all, the oppressor from within. He's going to come to conquer sin. Because if we will never have peace if sin resides in our heart, but if we can conquer the sin, then peace moves in in such a powerful way. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when sin is removed, peace can take residence. So he reminds the people, listen, in this time, here's where you gotta turn. You gotta turn to the Prince of Peace because his kingdom of peace is everlasting and it's where hope is found. And he goes on to just remind us of that. Verse seven in Isaiah chapter nine. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, here's, there will be no end. It's an eternal peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this very thing. He's reminding his people, listen, as followers of Jesus, you have this eternal promise. A peace that never ends. A peace that we would refer to as heaven. And for Isaiah's readers, this is, for us it doesn't hit the same way. But for Isaiah's readers, this idea of peace, a lasting peace is inconceivable. In their entire lifetime, for generations, they've never experienced peace. There's always been the threat of war. There's the threat of war in this very moment. The Assyrians are coming. They know it. They've never had this peace. And so Isaiah's words of saying, listen, there's an eternal peace that you'll be able to rest. There's an eternal peace that you'll have comfort that your children will be okay. This has a strong appeal. So Isaiah says, let me give you a vivid picture of what the eternal peace of heaven is going to look like. So two chapters later in Isaiah 11, he says, this is what peace with God looks like. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the Adler's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover.
cover the sea. So this is the peace. This is why the Hebrews have the, one of the names for God and Jesus is, is this Hebrew name, Shar Shalom, right? Shalom simply meaning this, the one who removes all peace-disturbing factors and secures the peace. So Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, says this is who the Messiah is. I want to tell you about it because I want you to understand the heart of your Father for you and what he promises through this Jesus. He says this Messiah is going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He's going to be wise. He's going to be all-powerful. He's going to be an eternal Father who's going to bring in his kingdom not through war but through peace itself. It's a question for you this morning as we close out. When you think of this Christmas season, out of those four names for who the Messiah will be, what are those, which of those four resonates with you? Which of the four in this season do you need to find comfort and lean into? <laughs> Say, God, this is the heart of you that I need during this season. Is it the idea that God is a, is a wonderful counselor, that he directs your paths, that he comforts your heart? Is it the idea that his ways are greater than yours and I'm at a point, God, I, I, I need direction and I can't see it and I don't understand it. And God, this Christmas, I just need to lean into you. I need to know what this next season is for me and for my family or in this relationship. God, I, I need you to be that comfort that comes from being a counselor. Is it the idea that he's the mighty God, the God who still sits on the throne do you find yourself like me as you watch TV and you watch the news, you're screaming at the television, what's going on? Do you just need to be reminded that he's the mighty God? That power doesn't lie in the United Nations or in Washington, D.C., that the sovereign God is in control of all things? And though Caesar thinks he's making roads for military purposes, God says, oh, you're just paving the gospel. You just need to be patient. Do you in these things need to take confidence that God sovereignly is still sitting on the throne? And nothing that's happening and nothing we're experiencing hasn't happened that hasn't passed through his sovereign hands of love. And that it may not feel like it in the moment, but God's got a bigger picture. That Caesar serves him and not the opposite way around. Or is it the idea of, a, of an everlasting father? This idea that, that God is a, a good shepherd who cares for his sheep season where you feel alone or abandoned and maybe betrayed or misunderstood, do you just need to be reminded today that God promises as an everlasting father that he will never leave you, he'll never abandon you, he'll never neglect you, and he'll not only do that here on earth, but he promises to do that as an everlasting father for the rest of eternity. Do you need to just know today that you can rest your head in the heart of your father and trust him? Or is it the final one? It's just that idea that he is the prince of peace, the one who brings peace to your soul, right? Peace in your broken relationships, peace in your woundedness, peace in whatever the anxiety you're feeling today, that he's the one who brings peace. But he brings not just peace for those emotions, but he brings the greatest peace, and that's peace for the sinfulness of your life. That the prince of peace, peace offers to you forgiveness, and restoration and new life in him. If you'll just repent and turn to him 
and ask him in. See, that's the heart of God for you today and what Isaiah wants to say. This is who God is and this is why he's come, that your Messiah is gonna come wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And that babe that we celebrate, I wanna remind you that this is who he is. The incarnation of being fully God and yet fully man and yet sits there in the preciousness of the moment. He's not just a child. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, today we are just grateful and reminded of the words of Isaiah who so long ago said, I want you to know the heart of God that he comes not just as a conquering king to establish an earthly kingdom, that he comes for something far greater than that. That in his unexpected plan, he chose to come as a child to understand, to walk the roads we do, to meet us in our moments of need. That God in his unexpected plan, even though the timing doesn't feel like we want it to be or the circumstances aren't where we want, that God has something greater in mind. That God is working. And so we in great confidence can even say and sing today that God did it. God did it. And he made the devil pay for it. So God, today, wherever we are in our circumstances, may we be reminded that you've got this. And in an unexpected plan, you used an unexpected person for a babe to bring the message that radically changed the world. So today, may we just rest in that confidence in the sovereignty that God did it, that God did it. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.